Hey, welcome back to Epic. I hope you're doing fine. Today, we're going to talk about greenhouse gases and how they react in the atmosphere. And I also want to talk a little bit about population and emissions, because as you'll find out, the curves are very related to one another. So first, when you talk about the few impacts of climate change, and the big one here is that the sea levels are rising and the cost of adapting coastal areas will be very, very high. Secondly, there is a loss of capacity to work due to heat. Now, this is mostly in countries where it's very hot. The human body is not designed to operate under certain conditions. Obviously, if you go to the North Pole without any protection, you'll just freeze to death. But in warm countries, the body needs time to cool down. And if the temperature outside is, say, 60 degrees Celsius all day long, you're going to have trouble working there. You'll have heat strokes, dehydration, etc. There will be more wars to gain access to limited resources. So, of course, nothing on Earth is li uh, everything on Earth is limited, I should say. There is nothing unlimited here. And as the resources in certain regions of the world dry up, uh, people there, they have to survive. They have to live somehow. So that means if the country next to yours still has resources, you may have to go to war with it to get those resources so that people in your country don't die. There will be a freshwater supply shortage depending on where you are in the world. Some areas have more resources than others. And you, again, may go to war uh, over very basic things like water. Uh, the first time I heard this idea was back in high school. As a high school student uh, in my geography class, physical geography, I should say. And the teacher was talking about this, like, yeah, we're going to fight over water. And I thought, come on, there's, there's no way that we're going to fight over things like water and food. Um, in my mind, there was an endless supply of it. And I think for most people, in fact, they have this uh, image. But this scenario is getting more realistic as we go on. Uh, we're talking about relocation of entire towns, especially on coastal areas. Uh, historically, people built cities on the coasts, mainly due to trade. You could have a boat, for example, that goes from the Netherlands to the United Kingdom or uh, from the United Kingdom all the way to India. Historically, it was very advantageous to build cities along the coast, but now, with sea level rising, uh, a lot of these places are getting flooded. We're talking big populated areas like Tokyo, uh, New York, and even Miami. In some countries with a lot of land, you can afford to move people inward, albeit at a huge cost. But in many places in the world, people will not be as lucky. So then where do they go? Uh, who will take them in and why? These are questions that already dominate current political discourse. There will be shrinking productivity of harvests. Many areas get flooded. And in that case, uh, the soil may get a lot of salt and then things won't grow very well or at all. Other areas will be very dry. And again, things won't grow very well. Prices of basic foodstuffs and consumer goods will rise. So the demand is increasing, but the productivity areas are decreasing. And when you have a shrinking stock, it generally becomes more expensive. So yes, things like food and water may become quite expensive in the future. You got extreme meteorological phenomena that will cause widespread poverty. Now this can be, for example, a wildfire that was already bad but now it's 10 times worse because of climate change, and it may affect more areas, burn more farmland and more houses. Last but not least, diseases will spread due to higher temperatures. There is an argument made for that. 
And um, right now we're in the COVID era, so it's 2021, uh, we're dealing with COVID, and I hope you're, you're all staying safe, that's very important. Uh, but there is an argument that was made that because people were expanding into natural habitats where bats lived, they pushed them out of those natural habitats and bats moved basically into residential areas, ultimately spreading the disease at a wet market. The same can be said about insects and Zika. People living near swamps, for example, swamps are breeding grounds for insects. So it's natural that then insects attack people who live there and then they transmit the diseases. These things will probably happen at the same time. So we have to prepare for 10, 20 or more things at the same time. That's how you effectively tackle the adverse effects of climate change. So when we talk about greenhouse gases, most people talk about CO2 and there's a good reason for that. But there are other gases out there like methane, for example, and nitrous oxide. And even water is a greenhouse gas. But water typically changes state very often between solid, fluid, and gas. Water doesn't last long in the atmosphere, spending an average there of only about nine days, compared to carbon uh, that can spend hundreds of years. Uh, generally, we look at CO2, and this is data from 2000, and you can find an updated graph of this actually, uh, but the data has not changed much since, and that's very worrying that despite all the progress that we hear about, it seems that for every step forward, we take five steps back. CO2 in the year 2000 represented 77% of all greenhouse gas emissions by sector. Methane was 14 and nitrous oxide was eight. So uh, methane mainly comes from agriculture, as you all know. So cow farts and agricultural soils like rice paddies. Agricultural soils and livestock manure make up most of the methane emissions. And naturally you have some operational waste as well. Uh, when we talk about CO2, though, it's a much broader field and we have many elements in there. For example, land use change, and this can be uh, deforestation. People right now are very actively destroying forests. And yes, I know that many people are replanting trees as well, which is great. Uh, but remember that a young tree doesn't absorb as many emissions as an older one. When you plant a tree, it needs decades to grow. It's not like you plant a tree and poof, magically, it's an adult tree. It doesn't work like that. 25% of emissions, so pretty much a third, comes from electricity and heat for residential areas. There are also things here like oil and gas extraction, refining and processing. Transportation by road, air and boat. Uh, most of the emissions are by road, actually. I know we attack the airline industry sometimes, uh, or often I should say, but cars, trucks, buses are responsible for about 85% of all transportation emissions. So. It's important to modernize air fleets, but it's equally, if not important, more important to use electric vehicles. I'll give you an example here. I used to have a Nissan car uh, that was not very efficient and it costs about a hundred bucks a week for gas, uh, which is very expensive. Now I have a Toyota hybrid and we put gas in it maybe once every two or three months. So I save a lot of money. Electric vehicles are not actually not so expensive and you'll save quite a bit on gas. So boom, it's a win-win there. When we talk about CO2, we talk about CO2 concentrations and that's generally measured in parts per million or PPM. You may have heard or read about that. 
uh, we have a long record that stretches back about a million years. And if you look at that record, there are natural peaks. And of course, this is way, way before the Industrial Revolution, before people started to spew out an unimaginable amount of CO2 into the atmosphere. You see that the curves go up and down. That's normal. It largely depends on natural cycles, what nature was doing at the time. There are periods on Earth when there were higher concentrations of CO2 than others. That's normal. You see that even at the peak, though, it reaches about 300 ppm. But in 2018, and of course, this graph is a bit old already, because right now we're pushing towards 420 ppm. But even here, it's over 400. So natural cycle, 300. And now we're at 400, way over anything we have ever seen. I should say here that there are records that go beyond that. We know that the Earth is billions of years old, although some people don't think so. But if you go to the early conditions on the Earth, for example, the Hadean era, it's called that because it's a Greek word for hell, I believe, uh, because the conditions back then on the Earth were hellish. Pretty much molten rock that took some time to cool down. So, yes, you could say, oh, look, back then the CO2 concentration was uh, so much higher than today. And your point is, uh, do you want to go back to this? Do you want to go back to the Hadean period when the Earth was just molten rock and no life existed as far as we know? No, we don't want that. So that's why we look at the conditions during which people evolved. And we see, oh, it's a problem now because we have a high increase in the concentration of CO2 over a very short period of time. If you combine the actual, uh, the annual global temperature for combined land and ocean, you can go back to the 1880s and you can see a clear pattern of temperatures rising through 2020. So this is what we see right now. Both land and ocean temperatures are rising. Uh, the ocean is very important in the story because it absorbs a lot of CO2. It's a huge carbon sink, in fact. And there's a lot of heat content that gets added to it as well. And that's very, very dangerous. In the world, the one of the most recent data I could find is that we emit about 35 billion tons of CO2 per year. Now, you can divide that into continents, and you'll see that about 60% of that comes from Asia. And that is not very surprising because over the course of the 20th century, uh, populations in Asia have increased very rapidly. So let's look at some of the curves here. Uh, let's start with India, for example. So in 1950, the population of India was around 375 million people. Right now, it's 1.38 billion people. So we increased by about four times. In China, the population in 1950 was 550 million, and now it's 1.4 billion. So we multiplied by a factor of three. And even countries like the Philippines in 1950, there were around 18 million people and now 110 million. So that multiplied by about five or even six. So population, especially in Asia, has risen quite dramatically. And of course, with that, you have associated emissions. As we look later in the, cur uh, in the course, the curves of population emissions are highly related to each other. So finally, you have North America, US and EU and Africa down there, they are all under 10 billion tons per year, but it all accumulates. Now, this graph is very interesting and important. 
It was produced by the Ministry of the Environment based on a handbook of energy and economic statistics in Japan. Uh, here is a breakdown of CO2 emissions by country. And first of all, you have the G8 countries. So these are places like the US, Russia, Japan, Germany, UK, etc. And then you got nations that are part of the G20. So here you find China, India, Korea, Mexico, etc. All of that, just the G20 nations, they represent 78% of the global CO2 emissions. Just think about that for a second. Just 20 countries are responsible for three quarters of all CO2 emissions. And then of course the rest of the world is makes up 22%. So the major polluters, we don't call them major for nothing. It's, it's for a very clear reason. And as I was saying, we can plot a curve of world population against CO2 emissions. And you can see that the population, as the population rises, emissions rise with it as well. So this is not surprising at all because with more people, you have more cars, you have to cool more houses, you have to heat more houses, people are buying more appliances for their homes, etc. So it's not surprising that the curves are related. It's also important to say here that the population of the world really exploded after World War II. Now we call them the baby boomer generation, but that's exactly what happened. So right now the population of the world has about tripled since 1950 and we're in uncharted territory. We don't really know where we're going with this. It's an experiment and we're the guinea pigs, uh, but the overall trends are not very positive. In the next lesson, we're going to look at natural disasters and climate change because some people say climate change is everything, but climate change is not everything. And in fact, some natural disasters are made worse by it and some are not. So we'll talk about that. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I recommend checking out the website because it has visuals. It also has a quiz section and answer section. Uh, the easiest way to find it is to go to Google and type Epic Climate Change Course. And usually it brings up the listenable link, but that's just an audio link anyway. Uh, but there might be a YouTube video which has a picture of a tree, a forest basically. Uh, and so that's it. If you click on that, there is a link in there to the main website. So unfortunately, I don't have a domain, so I don't have a direct link. But anyway... Uh, stay tuned for more.